Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, February 16th. I'm Jeff Salzman here in Boulder, Colorado, with our producer, Brett Walker. Hey, Brett. Hey, everyone. And Corey DeVos is over at Integral Radio taking care of things over there. And I am happy to be here and happy to have you with me. Uh, we have a lot we want to get to tonight. I want to talk, first of all, about Einstein's big week. You know, he had a big week where the general theory of relativity got its final proof. And we might want to take another look at the phenomena of Donald Trump, who continues his red rampage through the Republican Party. And in a few minutes, I want to bring on my dear friend and integral mentor, Steve McIntosh, to talk about the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and the ramping up of political polarization that his death is already sparking between the president and Congress and all of the stuff that we've been hearing about in the last few days. But first, a couple words from our sponsor, if you will, and that's Integral Life, which is the home of Integral Radio and also the home of the Daily Evolver. Uh, I also have, of course, uh, uh, Brett and I have our own website, dailyevolver.com, with a bunch of other stuff we post in addition to the podcasts. And if the podcast is also available on uh, iTunes and other podcast sites. But uh, Integral Life was the original home and is the central web portal for the worldwide integral community. And the good folks there, Corey DeVos, David Reardon, and the gang, they really generate tons of high-quality integral content from some of the leading luminaries in the integral world. And here's a short list of what's coming up from Integral Life. Uh, first of all, Ken Wilbur, and his, his uh, home is at Integral Life as well, will be doing a live full-spectrum mindfulness presentation this weekend at the Wisdom 2.0 conference in San Francisco. And Integral Life is about to publish the final lectures of OK, I'm Dead, Now What?, which is the practices for living, dying, and living again with Andrew Holacek. And Ken's new book, Integral Meditation, which I've seen the galleys, it's really terrific, comes out on May 15th, I'm sorry, March 15th. So um, keep an eye out for that. And, you know, if you're a real serious integral enthusiast or practitioner, it's really worth your trouble to um, check out Integral Life and perhaps pony up the $100 a year it takes to be a member and join the community. There's really a thriving uh, community and community conversation going on there as well. All right. So let's look at this crazy mixed up week in the long uh, arc of evolutionary history. And as I said, uh, first of all, what got my attention in, in some ways above everything was the, um, uh, as I said, the proof for the general theory of relativity. And what actually happened is that, um, well, from a bigger perspective, we human beings, um, the homo sapiens, the beings who can think, who climbed down from the trees 200,000 years ago on this planet Earth, we have, after gazing at the sky for a couple hundred thousand years, have decided that we have detected ripples in the very matrix of space and time. And that's an amazing realization that, that the substrate 
from which we build our lives, time and space, neither are nearly as solid as we thought, and in fact are malleable to gravitational forces, at least. And we know this because we built, we humans, I always like to think of us as the, you know, the bigger group, the world-centric view here. We human beings built this amazing installation called LIGO, which is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, which is a billion-dollar facility uh, that is half in Louisiana, half in Washington State, both sites of which include these two shafts that are two and a half miles long, perpendicular to each other. And they create this antenna that detected one of the biggest things imaginable, and that is the collision of two black holes that happened a billion years ago. And, you know, it turns out that the echo, that the the ripple from that event can still be felt in this moment. And that is a huge discovery. I don't really quite understand it or fathom it in a sort of scientific sense, but I listened to the scientists and I heard one describe it as it being like the first flicker of light that someone might see before the sun comes up and illuminates a whole landscape. And that's where we're going with this. We're building another one of these facilities in a couple of years, we're launching one into space. And um, it's like having a new sense in addition to seeing and hearing that um, gives us a new perspective on the universe. And, you know, when I think about that, you know, as I always say, there's, a, there's the realization that that's true, that mind, the time and space is malleable. And that's a scientific realization. You know, nobody would disagree with that to scientific. Uh, but there's the capital R realization too. And that is the, wow, part of it. And the first part of the wow for me is, aren't we amazing, we human beings, that we actually know such things? I mean, really, it's just astonishing to me that we have been able to figure these things out. And of course, when I say we, I mean Albert Einstein, who figured it out a hundred years ago. That's a long time ago. And he figured it out mathematically. And, you know, I've, I've, I remember, you know, reading about the beauty of mathematics and the music of the spheres and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, I, I sort of always felt bad because I was never good at math. And so I never really figured that I would ever really get the sort of beauty part of that. I never really understood that. But I do now. And, and this actually helps me because I realize that what human beings have been able to do is to create an abstract system of thought, mathematics, that can distill the principle of exterior reality, what we can see and feel and measure and peer into into the universe. We can distill all of those principles into this interior um, abstract system of thought, the concrete um, reality translates into this abstract reality. And in this abstract reality, we can describe things about concrete reality that we haven't been able to see, feel, or demonstrate. 
And that's exactly what happened. A hundred years ago, Einstein mathematically figured out that, you know, if, if this abstract system really indeed does reflect reality, this is what reality has to be like. And that's astonishing to me. That's what human beings can do. And so, again, uh, from a scientific perspective, that's a big deal. And from uh, an integral perspective, we would say that that is uh, a modern, postmodern realization. And that there is another step that integral can take, and I alluded to it, and that is that there's a capital R realization that, you know, time and space are not solid. And this realization opens up and lights up our present moment experience. It's, it's like a quote from Emerson that Steve told me this afternoon. And that is, the quote from Emerson is, every natural fact is a symbol of some spiritual fact. And Ken Wilber, in his quadrant theory, talks about that for every object in the exterior quadrants, there is a correlate object in the interiors. So for every object in the exterior body and world, we have something in consciousness that correlates to it. So what is it? with this theory of general relativity, general theory of rel relativity. And I, I read an article, I actually had a semi-traumatic experience for an Enneagram 5. And that is, I read this article that gave this beautiful, poetic, interior kind of view of what this means for people. It was actually in USA Today, I think. But I lost track of it. And uh, I erased my history, and my Evernote didn't work, so it wasn't saved. And um, I spent at least an hour looking for it. I couldn't find it. You know, normally you can Google something. And so it's just become this sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, white whale <laughs> that I can't find. But if anybody finds it from what I, my description is, uh, please send it to me. Uh, but he was talking about that one of the ways that we want to think, or that we can think about this, is that when we add time as a fourth dimension, which is what this theory does, that we don't want to just see it as added on to length and width and depth as the three dimensions, but we want to see that the whole thing is one interpenetrated four-dimensional reality so that every moment contains all of the previous moments, all of time. And that is a realization that, as I said, just we can breathe that in. We can feel our, it's like Whitman said, the, we inhale great drafts of space when we realize something like that. And this science writer said the same thing. I remember the example was he said, it would be as if we were dealing with people who could only see two dimensions and we can see three. We would feel sorry for these people who are limited to two dimensions. And I was explaining this to my friend Brian, uh, and he gave me a great example of that very thing. He was, uh, had been watching the, the science documentary, and it was about the constellations and specifically the Big Dipper. And, you know, Brian has been involved in astrology, and he loves the sky and nature and all of this stuff. And the point that the 
documentary was making is that the Big Dipper isn't actually a thing. It's simply what appears in a two-dimensional view of the stars in the night sky. But if you leave Earth and, and, and travel into space and look at it from any other perspective than from Earth, the Big Dipper consists, well, it's just seven stars. You know, they're all light years from each other. They're different in uh, history and age. And, you know, they're just part of the billions of stars in the galaxy. And that realization, they did some animation and it was like, whoa. And that is the feeling that we get. Only now we have four-dimensional reality, one that includes in an interpenetrated way this idea of time, that it's everything that happens is still reverberating in this moment. And, and we know this in the exteriors. And this so moved me because it's an analog for what I talk about all the time in terms of the interiors and what integral consciousness uh, reveals to us about our interiority, about our consciousness and culture. And that is, is that each of us and all of our cultures are all moving objects. And while we think we live in this normal consciousness that has us moving from then to now, that a bigger consciousness realizes that it contains the unfathomable karmas of all of karmic history uh, in our individual identity. All of it is present in this moment. And integral theory, developmental theory in general, helps us understand that because we see that there are these stages of human growth, and actually the stages of evolution way previous to human growth, I mean, down to you know, atoms, to molecules, to cells, and the whole bit. But all of that, these stages of tribal and magic and mythic and traditional, modern, postmodern, integral, these all arise out of each other in a way where as, as the new level transcends the old level, it includes the old level. We include and transcend. And nothing goes away. And so we include all of those levels. They're all available to us in the energies um, and the you know, karmas of those levels are available to us. And so we can see ourselves, and we can actually meditate on this, that we are more, more verb than noun, that we are not just human beings, uh, we are human becomings. And so is everybody we meet, that there is, you know, we can see them, and there's width, and there's depth, and there's height, and, and, and there's, but there's also all of history, and all of their history that is moving in a creative way, adding new stuff, new creativity in every moment. And I just think that is fantastic. And to go back to Whitman, I'll finish that one verse. He says, um, I inhale great drafts of space. The north and the south are mine, and the east and the west are mine. I am larger, better than I thought, I did not know I held so much goodness. All seems beautiful. And I think that's just the nature of how these 
ideas help us to expand and aerate the solidity that we thought was us. And that the nature of that expansion is that the space in which we expand is itself loving and intelligent and good and true and beautiful. And, you know, hallelujah. So that was, uh, you know, such an inspiration to me this week. All right. See you next. Why don't we bring Steve in? Steve McIntosh, my dear friend, author of... Hi, Brother Jeff. How's that? Hey, man. Integral author of um, Evolution's Purpose, and your new book is out and happening. Since October. Yeah, cool. The Presence of the Infinite. And Steve is um, also the co-founder and president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And you and I are going to do a talk uh, later on this week, actually, on uh, a new paper that you wrote for ICE, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, on polarization. And um, But I wanted to have you on tonight because, you know, we had this weekend with uh, Antonin Scalia dying. And... You know, instantly, of course, Anthony Scalia, for those of you international listeners who may not know, is a conservative icon on the U.S. Supreme Court, a very, very consequential jurist who died at the age of 79, uh, natural causes, all that good stuff, but, but a surprise. And so, you know, the Constitution says that the president shall nominate a replacement and the Senate shall approve that. Well, that's all Good, except that our president, Obama, is a Democrat, and the Senate is Republican currently, and they have, well, the Senate has vowed to just not even consider any replacement that Obama would uh, uh, recommend because, uh, you know, he's only got 11 more months in office, and because they can, and because this is power politics at this level. They don't want the court to change. They can do it. And it's basically a cause because in past situations where this was the case, the president and Senate worked it out, but apparently not this time. And this is emblematic of the polarization that just continues to strengthen in in this country. And I want to know what you you know you're thinking in this in this article or in this paper. By the way, the The name of the paper is Overcoming Polarization by Evolving Both Right and Left, How Polarity Theory Provides a Path to Political Process. Yeah. So how does some of the principles apply in this situation? What do you see? Well, uh, the the sort of untimely or timely, depending on how you look at it, death of uh, the justice brings polarization to the forefront. You know, it's a, it's a problem that we all know we have. It's been affecting our government for perhaps two decades at least um, in terms of hyper-partisan polarization. I mean, polarization is really how it's supposed to work. But um, when it becomes stuck, when the polarity uh, uh, becomes so, there's so much loathing on either side that, that there's no compromise, that, that obviously the, when the, the Constitution was framed, there was an assumption of um, that, that even though there would be rancor, and there would be differences, and, and you know politics would be ugly, no question. But there would still be a binding element of us all being Americans, you yeah. know, and us all caring about America's well-being. And while that still functions somewhat, um, you know, for reasons that Integral explains, and that you know I explain in, in the paper, 
it's it's broken down in ways that are that are interesting that provide uh, if you'll pardon the cliche both a crisis and an opportunity mm-hmm. right so polarization is a tremendous opportunity for an integral perspective because it, polarization is really a problem that can't be solved at the same level that created it mm-hmm. you know it takes integral thinking i mean postmodern thinking can't solve it you know modernist thinking traditional thinking none of the existing stages are are capable of offering solutions and because they, they still fantasize about winning Conquest, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Uh, all first tier memes want to conquer the others and think that if only they could make them see the light, that that would happen. Right. Integral tells us not so fast. Well, and and for many years, for the majority of the twentieth century, um, traditional the traditional worldview and the modernist worldview had a kind of an establishment truce yeah. between themselves, right? especially after World War Two. Well, right. That was the liberal consensus, yeah. as it's known, which sort of was broken apart by the emergence of the postmodern world. Right, mm-hmm. but um, the, the 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 there was a truce. That truce was broken by the emergence of postmodernism, because then all deals were off between uh, traditionalism and modernism. So now we have these three major worldviews, and even even talking about the the history and how polarization came about is a, is a highly uh, you know involved discussion. But the interesting thing about um, uh, uh, Scalia's death is that it it. It brings polarization beyond just the conflict between the legislature, the legislative and executive branch. Now the third branch, the judiciary, is being potentially crippled by polarization. So the fact that all three branches are now involved means that there's a significant acceleration of the problem of polarization, which I think creates um, an acceleration in the opportunity for Integral to show its power by showing it how how it has realistic solutions that other stages can't provide. So how would you describe those solutions? You talk about evolving both left and right. Um, how do you see that working? Well, we at the Institute for Cultural Evolution, right? We started the the, the think tank in 2012 with the idea that um, integral, the integral perspective, could bring light to many different important political problems. But our main focus was on climate change. That was where we thought we really had something to say about um, how we can. Um, overcome the cultural problem, which is behind the political problem, which is behind the engineering problem, et cetera. But after working on climate change for over a year, we realized that the sort of the underlying issue was polarization itself, right? That it, that, that meaningful action on climate change was being stymied by polarization. So we spent 2014 working primarily on the problem of polarization and made some good progress and some great contacts in that range. And by polarization, you mean the attraction of people and Congress and our public servants to these polls of Republican and Democrat or left and right. Yeah. And, you know, to the point where we see that uh, Congress people almost never vote uh, outside of their uh, caucus, Uh, where we see that people not only disagree with the other side, even regular people, but they also more now demonize the other side. They would be less happy to see their children, if they're a Democrat, marry a Republican, than people 20 or 30 years ago. Yes. I mean, that's amazing. Right. But it's not just an inside-the-beltway problem. I mean, part of the the default thinking is that it's simply politicians behaving badly. Right. Or that that, that the influence of money in politics is the main cause, um, you know, or the influence on media is the main cause. And although those are certainly contributing factors, they're as much symptoms as they are causes. And and that's why it's very difficult for people— who are in the mainstream, for modernists especially, to, to understand the, the cultural roots of the problem because they can't really even see 
postmodernism is a coherent worldview, mm-hmm. right? They, they don't understand how, although it doesn't have a lot of political power, it has profound cultural power, which influences politics in indirect but significant ways. Right. So just being able to understand and recognize postmodernism as a, as a, you know, for both its strengths and its shortcomings as a historically significant emergence in history, I mean, if you can't even start there, then you can't possibly fathom, you know, the, the, the causes, let alone the solutions to polarization. Right. But, but beyond the, the stuckness in the, inside the beltway, where the Republicans and the Democrats um, are are highly polarized in the way that they they can't cooperate, they can't exert a moderating influence on each other. Um, you know, they 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 just are um, uh, in gridlock or yep. logjam, right? But but beyond Washington, beyond the electoral politics, we have a much broader polarization in the United States culture. Um, social scientists have identified that as what they call affective polarization or or a loathing. Of the other side. Mm. And of course, we can understand that in terms of the culture war too, right? I mean, this differentiation that has led to the stages increasingly disliking each other and being unwilling to cooperate is actually a a, a symptom of evolution itself. I was going to say, evolution is about differentiating and you can see this happening. Right. I mean, we're actually seeing it happening even uh, in the presidential election, how even the left is differentiating between Hillary and Bernie. The right is differentiating between the uh, establishment and the renegades. Right. And, 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 and I bring that out in the paper in that talking about polarization or politics in general in terms of left and right is, is it, it doesn't have enough resolution. It, yeah. You know, it has given our current political landscape simple categories like left and right confuse the situation as much as they clarify. Yeah. You know, we do have a historically ingrained two-party system and we do have the left-right framing imposed by the media – so there's still some meaning to left and right, but understand you have to go to the next level within the left. There's a polarity within the right. There's a polarity and seeing those polarities in action, you know, saying how we got to polarization. Well, after spending time on the problem of polarization itself, we realized to agree that that focusing on that problem or framing it, framing the problem as that uh, is um, incorrect because we have to kind of start upstream. Yeah. You know, that the left and the right or Republicans and Democrats under current conditions are largely irreconcilable on most issues, yeah. right? And again, we can understand why that's the case. And and the idea that we're going to just glue the thesis and the antithesis back together is completely naive and misunderstanding the evolutionary dimensions of what's going on. So in our work in the think tank, we've now moved to focusing on how we can make the left more mature and responsible, how we can improve and evolve the left in a way that that makes it stronger and, and not in a 50-50 gridlock with the other side. But We've also found that evolving one side of the spectrum inevitably involves evolving the other. You know, that the two evolve together, that the evolution of one, in a sense, gives permission for the evolution of the other and puts pressure on it. So that's what our strategy is now, is evolving both the right and left independently upstream from the polarization um, with the idea that in a, in a, in a two-year time frame, we could see measurable results by working on that as a prerequisite to greater cooperation overall. But, you know, another reason that... Um, that progressives are often sort of not attracted to the idea of polarization is because there's a sort of background default thinking that the solution inevitably involves a centrist compromise at some level, mm-hmm. you know, and that centrism involves validating the right in a way that progressives are not prepared to do, you know, right. understandably, right? right. So um, that's why in the paper, I try to drill down to below the candidates, below the the, the issues um, and get to the actual, the, the bedrock of loyalty identity that exists because ultimately I think that that the way to overcome polarization is for each all political 
constituencies, all factions, to see more value, to see more of the virtue of the other. You know, even while they may oppose them and want to, um, you know, beat them in an election, there's still a way in which if you're going to follow the spiritual principle of we're all one, mm-hmm. right? That means that we're all one with all these people that we disagree with. Well, I love what you said that it's the process of increasing the scope of what you're able to value. That, in a sense, is a summary of the the um, mission of yeah. the Institute for Cultural Evolution, and I think in some ways it summarizes the overall integral project yeah. of of helping people appreciate how there's value at every stage in the spiral and that to be integral means to be able to metabolize the values at every stage, even though it's you're not looking at them relativistically as though they're all the same or equally valuable. Yeah. But you've got to be able to reach back and appreciate um, the, the enduring values, the sort of the bricks in the wall, you know, that we're standing on. Um, and that applies in politics where it, it, that's the most difficult to do. So on the people on the left want to... Uh, expand their value sphere to include at least some of the values on the right and vice versa. Right. So, uh, so the right's doing the same with the left. Right. And that's different than compromise and centrism. That's actually growth. Uh, and, I, and I just have to say, I love, so I really got that because you've been talking about this for a long time, you know, the, the idea of, of um, uh, progressive postmoderns and uh, an optimistic uh, optimistic postmoderns and progressive libertarians, right? Know, sort of a new right. thing. And I, I got it when you explained to me that this is actually, you know, simply the same thing that happened to men and women. If you think of the sex role stereotypes in the in the small uh, uh, sort of world of options mm-hmm. that my grandfather had versus my grandmother, versus and then me, you know, that that over three or four generations, we have had men become nurturing and, and, and communicative and emotional and in touch with all of that. Women become out of the house and, 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 and making money and exerting power. And they don't become less men and less women. They just become more capable. Sure. And, and bigger within their, you know, poles. So- so, so one of our jobs is to translate integral thinking into terms that modernists, you know, which continue to hold the political power and most of the economic power, we want to influence the influencers. We want to have an impact uh, on the mainstream. And that means translating our arguments and our thinking into terms they can understand. And inevitably, that involves an oversimplification or uh, creating potential for confusion. So the idea of explaining how both sides can evolve by talking about how our ideals of masculinity and femininity involved, we got a lot of traction from that. People got a lot of ahas. Yeah. But there's I also, did. yeah, and, and so, you know, we can take a win on that, but there's also a way in which that distorts the situation. Because when we're dealing with American politics, we have a vertical dimension of development, right? You know, male and female are completely equal on, on a horizontal basis. Right. <clears throat> but when we're dealing with these different stages of development, you know, some have greater capacities than others. Some have a wider morality and a greater hold on truth. But we can't take a black and white position and just say that the people who are at this other stage of development are just all wrong or that they're evil or they should be sent to camps or, you know, whatever the, uh, whatever the remedy, uh, whatever the, the fantasy of crushing the other side. But one of the things that, we've, that, that integral philosophy and its adoption and refinement of polarity theory has really showed us is that there'll always be some version of a left and a right. Now, hopefully we, we need a more evolved version of both. But the polarity itself is like a morphic field. So that basic understanding of how the polarity is indestructible and that we, we you know, our best hope for improving things, but also rescuing our democracy from the threats that it currently faces, 
um, you know, both in terms of falling apart because the, gov- the, the government becomes um, uh, paralyzed or being threatened by demagogues, you know, mm-hmm. like Trump, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a big threat to our democracy. It actually matters and it's vulnerable and we have to care. Yeah. But I think that people who have integral consciousness have a special duty to participate in politics because they've got um, thinking and perspectives and indeed answers that are really needed. Um, but it takes work to try to translate those um, that thinking and those perspectives into uh, meaningful solutions to real problems that people have. Well, uh, just to go back to Trump for a second, um, you know, he is blowing up the calcified sort of polarity uh, that the the right has um, developed over the last twenty years uh, of you know sort of victimization and 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 um, their own self righteousness. But both sides have both sides have it, of course. But you know, he was up there last Saturday night at the debate uh, defending Planned Parenthood, uh, talking about universal health care. Uh, he was doing the Bush lied, people died thing, you know, from the Iraq war, which, you know, I mean, that's arguable, but boy, that's not a Republican talking point. No. And it's just so, you know, is he part of the solution or is he just, uh, what do you, how do you see him? Well, you know, first- He's so interesting. Yeah. Well, first, let me say that, of course, I'm, I'm horrified and disgusted, right? And, and I mean, I, I, uh, I think he is a threat to- um, to American good governance. I think if Trump was elected, it would be a global disaster. Uh, so, you know, I kind of just go on the record and condemning him roundly. <laughs> okay. Um, but I can also say there are things that I like about the phenomenon of his candidacy. Candidacy, You know, one is that it shows that we do have a real democracy, you know, that, that it's not just uh, uh, fixed by the establishment and the media or, you know, the, the patrician backroom deal makers who decided all for us. That there's a price to be paid for alienating, you know, the 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 working class, you know, the the forty percent of America who are attracted to Trump, and that the fallout from the recession um, and the gross inequality that we face right now is uh, it, it has consequences, and and these are showing up in electoral politics in a way that's horrifying the establishment on both sides. So the fact that it shows that the democracy is not fixed, that it's not just bought and sold, that there that the people do have power. Um, even though it can be frightening, you know, that that's a good thing. I think another good thing of the phenomenon of Trump is that it shows how, how the media are reactive, how he's just played them like a fiddle, and how they're completely mortified by the way in which they're being played and they can't do anything about it. <laughs> you know, they have to report on it. They, they have to talk about him even though they hate it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think it'll prove the media because it'll force them to see how reactive they are and how um, trapped by their own commercialism, you know, and that and yeah. that a certain amount of kind of old school Walter Cronkite responsibilism. Not that we want to go back to a monolithic media, but at least the monolithic media before it got you know blown up in a thousand ways that is positive had some editorial discretion about what they were going to ignore. Yeah. And the new media doesn't have that kind of authoritative uh, uh, discretion, at least nowhere near like it used to. And Trump has exploited it um, in a way that's completely embarrassing to the media establishment. So I think that's a healthy. Thing. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, myself yeah. included. <laughs> um, so, so Steve, then, what's it look like after at least some good portion of this has happened? That we have created the new synthesis out of the thesis and antithesis, and we have a more evolved right, a more evolved left that value the values of the include the values of the other. What's that look like, and how long do we have to wait? 
Well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, I'm not a futurist in that way. You know, I think ultimately the synthesis involves the rise of the integral worldview as a historically significant cultural stage. And um, I think that's awaiting upon the problematic life conditions for which integral provides a solution. You know, for years we've sort of said, well, we have a solution to a problem that people don't know they have, <laughs> in a joking way. Um, but now we're beginning to a identify. Solution in search, of, in search of a problem. Uh, right, right. But now we can, in a polarization among other choice political problems is uh, is an existential problem that can't be solved at the level that created it, as I mentioned, right? And and I in my work in, in um, my latest book, The Presence of the Infinite, I, I talk about a method for evolving consciousness that involves recognizing where these existential problems are, because those are where the openings for the insertion of higher level values exist, right? So, Integral brings a, a more inclusive set of values by, you know, better including all the values that have come along and adding some new ones. And that value set can start to become visible to postmodernists and modernists, at least, um, because they now have a, have a problem for which their thinking can't provide a solution. And the problem is getting worse, and it does indeed threaten our democracy at an existential level in a way that, uh, you know, evolution can certainly regress. And, uh, you know, we take it for granted. I mean, the, the U.S. government is such a sort of an enduring historical institution that it seems invulnerable. Um, but it is actually quite fragile. And if it were to break down, I think the integralists would be among the first to be sent to the gulag. So, you know, <laughs> this, this really is a, a, a matter of significant concern and that we have to be vigilant. That is, the, 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 that a, a, a viewpoint of, of conservation, you know, a conservative viewpoint is pretty important, especially if we recognize this polarity of progressive and conservative being interdependent and that there's a time to conserve our democracy and then there's a time to press it to progress. And the two are like two legs. You know, you can't really do one without the other. Right. Well, thank you. Sure. Uh, that's, I, I look forward to having a, a more full conversation about this and about all, you know, you're thinking about polarity in general as, as you present in this amazing paper. Thanks. Thanks. Um, well, so we're going to get a chance to talk about the, the paper in the time yeah, ahead and we'll exactly. unpack it more in a, in a longer theoretical discussion. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for coming over and... Um, sharing your thoughts on particularly, you know, what's going on in politics in this moment. So well, thank really you. I'm, I got to just say, I'm so proud of you for doing the Daily Evolver and, and fulfilling this very important niche to ha oh. having integral media. It's really a beautiful uh, fruit of the spirit. So I'm, I'm thrilled to participate oh. with you and to just see how it's going from success to success. So congratulations on oh. that. Oh, well, you're making me happy again. <laughs> All right, Steve, All right. thanks so thanks, much. Jeff. Thanks you for having me on. Okay, All read right. the paper, culturalevolution.org. Yeah, we'll do. So, yeah, so let's stop, pause for a second. So, Institute for Cultural Evolution. It's culturalevolution.org is the URL. I, okay. And, uh, and the paper's on. And, and the paper's are the first slider window, and, and you can just read it. It's 22 pages, uh, and um, it's certainly some good food for thought in this moment, this poignant moment of intense polarization. Indeed. Thanks so much. Thanks, All Jeff. right, Steve. Okay. So now we're going to move to our question of the week from our listeners and i um as i often say i really love hearing from you folks you can email me at daily jeff at dailyevolver.com but what's really cool is to go to our website dailyevolver.com and on the home page you'll see an orange button at the right that says leave a voicemail for jeff and uh People who do that, we can play it on the on the air, and uh, and I can answer in real time. So, we have a question tonight from a listener from Canada, Marilyn, and um, Brett. We ready to roll? Hit it. 
I live in Canada and I work in America. I find the apparent strengthening of this gun lobby and Obama's, in my opinion, courageous stand against it in the last year of his presidency very, very troubling. I have to travel via Dallas-Fort Worth on a regular basis, in fact this week, and I feel like I am taking my life in my hands. I am looking for an integrally informed point of view that you might offer that can give me some hope, some guidance, some sane advice. Am I too hubristic to think my non-gun Canadian point of view provides some grounding to the small city in which I am working in Oklahoma on a very regular basis? Or should I abandon ship, if only in protest? Thanks for any insights you can offer on this particular American dilemma of the Second Amendment. Thank you, Marilyn. So what can Integral uh, help us understanding about, about this particular American obsession with guns. We now have more guns in America than people, over 330 million. And they are lethal. Uh, We have every year somewhere around 30,000 gun deaths. And that is six times what you have in Canada uh, and 14 times what you have in Northern Europe. Uh, And um, now, just statistically, it's interesting to see that 20,000 of those 30,000 are suicides. Isn't that something? 10,000 are homicides, and 500 are accidents. That don't quite all add up there, but that you get the numbers. Uh, 30,000 total, 3,500 total. Uh, so, you know, I think statistically, you're in okay shape to come to America. Uh, you're you're about a quarter uh, likely to be killed by a gun than by a car. But still, it's an atrocious number. And all 30,000 of them are individual tragedies that we want to feel into. And we have, in this country, spent billions of dollars uh, tackling terrorism in the last 10 years. And terrorism has killed... uh, about 300 Americans since 2005, now 3,000 and 2001. But in the same 10 years since 2005, uh, we've had over 300,000 American uh, Americans die from gunshot wounds. So, you know, it's, it's pretty out of whack. Now, what Integral can tell us is a couple things that I think are really interesting. And that is that a lot of the explanation for America is typological. And if you think of the founding of America, it was founded, at least by the European conquerors, if you will, by people who left home and left home with, with virtually no hope of ever returning. And what is the psychographic of a person like that uh, that, is, that has that kind of adventuresome spirit that kind of independence, that kind of, um, you know, agency, uh, lack of feeling of, of the collective. Uh, I think from an Enneagram perspective, it's probably a lot of eights who are, you know, pretty intent on colonizing their worlds at any rate. And threes who are always looking for something new. And maybe a good number of good old restless sevens who just can't sit still. I don't know. But there is a psychographic that is part of the DNA of America that comes from this, you know, these people who left home enough. Some of them were the undesirables, criminals, um, religious heretics, the pilgrims, the, uh, you know, Puritans, 
these were people who couldn't find a place there. So when they arrived here, of course, they arrived as people in amber, red, kind of traditional stage of development. And they arrived in a magenta world, a world of, of, of tribal native people. And of course, you know, it was conquer mode from day one, basically. And guns and bullets made it a most unfair but successful fight for the Europeans. And, you know, this is the nature of history. Higher developmental levels conquer lower developmental levels. That's just part of the way it works. Red beats magenta, and it did. But as, you know, Americans uh, conquered the continent, there were no systems in place. There was no king or monarchy or remnants of the king. It was literally, as we say, the Wild West. There was no church. It was, it was you know, every man and woman, if you will, or tribe or, or, or clan uh, for themselves. And so that's just the, the nature of the beast here in America. Uh, and that's interestingly also... Um, the same thing happened in Canada, except Canada did a couple things differently, and I'll get to a couple of them in a minute, but part of it may just be also typological and temperamental, that we have, just as in Europe, the Scandinavians tend to be more peaceful. Uh, the Northern Americans uh, in Minnesota uh, have that sort of Scandinavian, a lot of Danish in Iowa, also less um, aggressive. And I think there's also some truth to that in Canada. It's part of the DNA of Canada. But, um, but it's also developmental. And um, there's a couple things that we can see about gun ownership and the developmental stages in America. And that is, um, first of all, as America continues to develop into modernity and post-modernity, fewer and fewer people have guns. It's a strange thing where... We have uh, postmodern people are kind of embarrassed by guns. They don't. They they have a, a repulsion to guns. I do. You know. I just think what what's up with that? What do you need with all these? You know. What are you shooting all the time? You know. And uh, moderns also to some degree, but postmoderns for sure. Uh, but the uh, the early modernists and traditionalists, they're the ones who really. Uh, it's there's like fewer people have guns, but the, those who do have more and more of them. So for people who have guns, they'll often have, you know, 10, 20, 30 guns. They, they collect guns. It's a hobby for them. And they also, I think of some of my traditional friends from back home, they don't have the same kind of trust in the system that modernists and most postmodernists do. So when I talk about that it's developmental, we see that where most of the trouble is, is in the red strata of society. So the criminal element, uh, these backward rural areas, blighted urban neighborhoods. And these are basically communities that really haven't reached the traditional level yet. At traditional, you know, there are accidents and there are problems and Guns are too available for people who are in heat of passion and, and, and suicides and so forth. But traditional people, these are the ones who are collecting, and they're basically gun enthusiasts. The modernists can take it or leave it. They'll use them as necessary. Postmodern, repulsed by the whole idea. And so, you know, there's the strata, the four strata. 
But we have to also notice that the whole system itself is moving. And so we have this amazing reality that despite the fact that gun ownership or the number of guns in America has increased by more than 50% since 1993, in that same period of time, gun homicide rate, the gun homicide rate has dropped by half. So despite what we hear about gun violence, gun violence is currently half of what it was in 1993. So, you know, we can take some hope in this sort of civilization of the whole system. I feel like I live in a town where the police are going to take care of me. My cousins don't necessarily feel that way, and they're not necessarily wrong. I remember one of my young cousins telling me when I told him I didn't have a gun, he said, you're irresponsible. He said, I don't care so much about you because you live alone, but, you know, if you had a wife and kids, I'd smack you upside the head. You're, you're not doing your duty. You know, you got to protect your family. And that's an, it was, it was so, I mean, I love him. He's, it was fun. It was fine. Uh, but I got it that to not own a gun is irresponsible at that stage of development where you really have to uh, take care of yourself. That's the way your mind works. And there's some truth to that. Um, and then you have, um, you know, the, the, the gun and gun lobby that you talk about. Uh, they have the most passionate voters. So these are the voters who go to the voting booth and, you know, they can throw elections one way or the other. And so you find that there's one poll that showed that 74% of even NRA members, this is in the New York Times, favor universal background checks. Uh, 62% of all Americans approved of President Obama's executive actions last month. But will they get through Congress? No. Because, as Steve was talking about, these states and, um, and gerrymandered districts are so monoperspectival, they're so right or left, that to, to step outside of the lines is to be voted out of office, and politicians know this. So, you know, I think another maybe explanation of the difference between where America went with it and where Canada went with it is just a couple quirks of history. One of which is we wrote it into our constitution that uh, it's the right of the people to keep and bear arms and that that right shall not be infringed. And that's pretty hard to get by, except that this is the part that always sort of amazes me about the Second Amendment. We always hear, you know, the, the, it's, it's two phrases. We always hear the second phrase, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The first part of the, of, of the Second Amendment is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So we need a well-regulated militia to ensure that, uh, the security of a free state. Therefore, the rights of the people shall not be infringed to keep and bear arms. But that's not at all how the Supreme Court, including Scalia in his you know, famous uh, District of Columbia versus Heller decision, which opened the floodgates, um, said that individual people have the right to bear arms in self-defense. That was a big move. And now, you know, forget the well-regulated militia. There's, there's any yahoo can go out and buy any gun he or she wants and, you know, use it to shoot the candles off their birthday cake. I mean, I don't know what they do, but something like that. 
and there's no militia, and it's not very well regulated. So I think, you know, this is a misreading of the plain uh, intent of the language, but uh, that's not the direction we went here in America. So um, there you go. But I, again, I think uh, you're probably still safe. I mean, one of the things that I would say about the pe- most of the people who own guns is that they, the, what they want liberals to understand is that we don't have to worry about them. They got it covered. And I know I grew up with these people. My dad was, my uncles, they all had guns. And we all, it was a matter of pride that we took care of the guns, that everybody knew how they worked, that they were kept safe. Traditionalists want you to keep your hands off of that way of life. Uh, And I think in some ways it's a little bit of a corollary to how liberals felt about gay marriage. It's like, it's not the end of the world. It's not the corruption of the institution of marriage. It's not going to, you know, pave the way to hell. Trust us on this. We can handle gay marriage. And I think both are right, but it's hard for the other side to wrap their head around it. All right. Well, I think we're uh, about there for the night. Um, I, again, really appreciate everybody tuning in. All right, we're taking off next week. I'm going to Mexico for a little R&R, but we will be back in two weeks, Tuesday, March 1st. Until then, keep it integral.